podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. What's good, boys and girls? Two for the podcast, Friday the 12th of November, brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access whatever it is you're geo-blocked from, while also keeping your data safe. LibertyShield.com. Use the code EPLPOD, that's E-P-L-P-O-D, to get 50% off at checkout, instant download of the software onto your device and you can get using straight away, access whatever it is you want. If you're a UK expat, you can get BBC iPlayer, Sky Go, ITV Hub, all four. If you're an Irish expat, RT Player, Virgin Media, an American expat, you can get Hulu, Peacock, HBO, whatever it is you're looking to do libertyshield.com the number one rated vpn provider on trustpilot we're also brought to you by home of hopcroft a giftware and homeware company located in scotland but shipping worldwide check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and lastly do remember to check out the epl index and anfield index shops which you can find on etsy right folks on a wet and windy day here in two-footed towers we are going to finish off our season so far review. It's a very quiet day otherwise. There's international football going on. Uh, you can you can go and look at that for yourself. I watched Ireland against Portugal. There's nothing more to say other than that Shane Duffy is in fact the best player in the world and Cristiano Ronaldo is a scrub. Um, still no movement at Norwich. Allegedly, they have spoken to both Frank Lampard and Dean Smith. They're also hoping to speak to uh, Knutson, the manager of Bodo Glimt, before making a decision. So it does appear like they sacked Daniel Farker without having a real idea of who they wanted, uh, which is a little bit strange, especially for a club that have been so well run. I don't think Lampard is the best choice, but if you look at it from the point of view of a championship club appointing Frank Lampard, then I can see it as, you know, as a better idea. I don't think he's a good Premier League manager at this point, but in all likelihood, they're going down anyway. And if he could simply use the rest of this season to figure out what he has there and what he will need in the summer, who they can sell and build a style of play, set up a culture that suits him and gives him what he wants, then they will be well positioned to come back up next season and maybe in their third time around uh, of this cycle in the Premier League, they will have more success. Their fourth time in the Premier League in recent years, that would be. 
very much the, the yo-yo club right now. I think they would probably like that to stop. I, I could see it being enjoyable if it was a thing where you were at least competitive in the Premier League and you were kind of flitting between 18th and 17th throughout the season. So every game mattered and then you went down. But then the next season you're chasing promotion again. So again, every game matters. But when you're just nailed to the bottom of the league, games stop mattering quite early in the season, especially if a gap appears, which in no likelihood one was going to for Norwich despite the win at the weekend. Um, so they have a decision to make. Dean Smith is is a good option, but he has just been sacked from another Premier League job, one that mattered so much more to him than this one would because of his connections with Aston Villa. So you do have to wonder, does he need a little bit of time off? Now, he's in America at the moment uh, over visiting his son, who I think plays over there or coaches over in America. Um, I think he could do with some time off. Lampard obviously has had his time off now. He's been out of work nearly a year. So he could, he could be a good fit once they go down. It just depends on on himself, really, because at Chelsea, he never really dis- developed a, a style of play. At Chelsea, there was no... They didn't look like a team that had been well-coached. And Derby were kind of the same, heavily reliant on exceptional individual talents, Harry Wilson and Mason Mount. And at Chelsea, it was always the same thing. They looked like a team that had been told, just go out and express yourself. We have better players than they do. So that's the worry with Lampard. Gerrard was a bit like that when he first went to Rangers. There was no real defined style of play. What was the style of play was quite ugly. And then Michael Beale joined him, and that backroom staff sort of came together, and they developed a very entertaining style of play now, very similar to to Liverpool, who I imagine they borrowed from heavily. But putting those ideas into practice is the difficult part. It's one thing to say, well, we want to play like that team. Actually getting your players to operate that way is a completely different thing, and that's where the credit goes to Gerrard and the staff. But Lampard doesn't seem to have surrounded himself with people like that. I know he's got Jody Morris, who's highly rated, but Jody Morris would be like your Gary McAllister, you know, a good trainer. But is he really a tactician? Is he a deep thinker about the game the way someone like a Michael Beale is? I think Lampard needs to go and add somebody like that and a defensive-minded coach for balance to his group. And he needs to have a tight core of people that he can bring with him. He can't just walk in and think, well, I'm Frank Lampard, they're going to play for me, because it doesn't always work that way. And thus far, we haven't seen that you're a good enough manager to really inspire players to do their best for you. Chelsea were heading down the table when you got sacked. Knutson would be interesting. He's the sort of wild card name, because he hasn't managed in England before. There's... A bit of mystique about him, obviously, coming from far afield and 
he had that great win over Roma, but I mean, I don't know enough about him to really comment. I think he's the biggest gamble in that he's never managed in the league, even though he definitely has a lot more experience than Lampard and he's been more successful than Lampard, although, you know, you have to take into account the level of the league. I I hope they get a decision made quickly because they need to have that person in place early next week to get some good training sessions under the belts of the players ahead of the first game in charge. This can't drag on for much longer. It really can't drag on for much longer. Right, we'll leave that there. We're going to jump into our season so far reviews and we'll start with Southampton. And a bit of a mixed bag for them so far this season. They started the season in pretty poor form, it must be said. Through seven games, they'd failed to win any. Four draws, three defeats, lost to Everton. Then the four draws in a row were Manchester United at home, a game they should have won. Newcastle away, a game they got a little bit lucky to get the point out of. Conceded the late goal, but then got the really late penalty. 0-0 0-0 draw with West Ham is a good result. And a 0-0 draw with Manchester City, also a good result. But then defeat to, to Wolves and defeat to Chelsea. And you wouldn't mind losing to Chelsea. And in fact, when you look at the results, the performances weren't great. But the results are actually better than you'd expect for a team with no wins through seven games. If you can get draws with Manchester United, with West Ham and with Manchester City, they're not bad results at all. Losing to Chelsea, not a bad result. Losing to Everton, not a bad result. A draw with Newcastle, who are horrendously poor. And losing at home to Wolves was disappointing. But it has turned round for them. They beat Leeds 1-0. They drew 2-2 with Burnley. They went to Watford and beat them. And then they beat Aston Villa. And what we've seen is... The development of young partnerships. So he, he's been out of the team in, in the last couple of games, but Broya coming in up front has been massively important for them. His his elevation into the team, he's only in on loan from Chelsea, obviously, really kick-started their season because he gave them that target man. He gave them a focal point for their attack. They have a lot of nippy attackers. A lot of guys like Elianassi and Adams and Armstrong that are probably best off a striker. Redmond is the same. Walcott is the same. These guys play off the striker quite well. Not so much as the main striker. But Broya comes in, he can lead the line. He has that physical presence. He has that work rate. He has that appetite. And I thought him coming into the team and the different pairings that worked there. I mean, Che Adams was quite fun. I'd like to see him and Armstrong get some time together. Move back. When Diallo came into the team next to Romeo, I thought their midfield went up a level. Now, they've brought Ward-Prowse back in, understandably, as the captain, but Diallo was playing really, really well and is one who can give them massive promise for the future. The big one is at centre-back, though. Bednarak coming back into the team next to Salisu has just massively strengthened them. And that pairing, they've probably only played 
six or seven games together, they have been absolutely outstanding so far this season. They've been tremendous. There's a natural understanding and a natural balance to how they play. Bednarak is very much your by-the-numbers-by-the-book type of centre-back. Heads it, kicks it, reads the game well, talks well, doesn't make many mistakes, and is always alert to sweep either his full-back or his centre-back partner. Salisu has good pace and is exceptionally good on the ball, really good at carrying the ball, a good passer from the back. He's also aggressive. He's a front-footed defender. And I think the balance between the two has been really good. And that is something that Southampton fans should be very excited about. Not only that, Tino Livermento. Now, I'm not sure he should have played every single game. I think there were games where it looked a little bit too big from this season. But he's obviously a tremendously talented player. Um, just turned 19. Huge prospect. They did so, so well to get him from Chelsea for, was it 5 million they paid from in the summer? Uh, 5 million with a reported buyback of 25. It's, it's quite impressive that in the last four or five years, Chelsea have produced Reese James, Tariq Lamptey, and him, and that Sterling kid as well looks very, very talented. A lot of clubs go a decade without producing one good fullback, and they've produced, well, at least three really promising young right backs who are all going to be in the England mix for a long time, unless Lamptey decides to declare for Ghana. But I think when you, when you factor in him at right back, Salisu as the left centre back, that's two really good, really young players that can be a big part of their future. Two areas of the team that they don't need to worry about for a while. I mean, Bednarak is only 25 as well. So he's got youth in his side. They've got Walker Peters, who might just have to be the third, the third fullback, the backup on both sides. He's 24. They brought in uh, Perot in the summer as well, obviously the left back. He's 24. And then they brought in Thierry Small. The young left back from Everton. He's 17. So for Saints fans, you're looking at this and you'd be thinking, well, if we can add maybe a young centre back, a young backup centre back, all of a sudden our defence is boxed off for the foreseeable. Now they brought in Lianco in the summer. He's a bit older, obviously, but actually, to be fair, he's still only 24. So he fits that that kind of age bracket as well, of a group that can be developed together, a group that you're not going to have to tinker with. If they can keep them together, if they can ward off clubs coming in with big money buys, there's no reason this group couldn't be together for four or five years. They've got Jack Stevens at 27, who's that older head, been at the club a long, long time, 10 years Ten years he's been at the club. And while he's... I don't think he's a starter quality player. I do think he's a good backup to have. 
And I think he's a guy that can come in when Bednarak is out and give you one or two good games. So you have to be really, really impressed with how quickly they've put together a defensive group that they can look at as a group that is good now and is only going to improve. Every one of them. Every one of them has room for growth. And there will be enough natural development as they as they age that it should see, in particular, Livermento, Salisu and Small all step up to quite a high level because Thierry Small is very, very highly regarded. Um, you know, you add Diallo to that as a holding midfielder in front of them and all of a sudden that defensive group really looks strong. The area of concern with them is still in midfield, though, because they've just, they've only got three bodies, and ideally they need at least one more. You'd like to see them get more goals, but like I said earlier, if Armstrong and Broya get a run together, I think goals will come from that partnership. I do think they have the potential to score quite a few goals between them. El Yanassi has stepped up this season, finally displaying the form that prompted Southampton to buy him for quite a bit of money a few years back. Um, you know, I, I quite like Nathan Tella as a young player. I like Stuart Armstrong. I think he's he's the type of reliable player who's never going to be an 8 or 9 out of 10, but he can be 7 out of 10 every single game. Genepo or Genepo, I really like. I think he's um, he's a little bit hit and miss still, obviously. But if he could find consistency, I think he could be a big player for them. There's a good team there. They've obviously got a very good manager. Defensively, I've been very, very impressed this season. They've only conceded 12 goals. The issue is they've only scored 10. That's a big issue for them. They've had three different games where they failed to score. They've only scored more than one twice. That was against Newcastle, who an awful defence, and Burnley, who were, well, to be fair, they've been dreadful this season. Um, they get Norwich next. That's a big opportunity for a win. Then it's Liverpool. That'll be a tough game. But I do really like what they've very quietly put together here. And they obviously brought in that Dylan, uh, Dinell Simeo, a young defender from Chelsea in the summer as well. They just seem to exclusively shop at Chelsea. But he's very highly regarded too. And maybe he's another one that adds to that core in the coming years. He's, only, he's, he's 19. So he may well be ready to make somewhat of an impact later this season or next season. He could be one that they look at as someone with first-team potential. I haven't seen a whole lot of him. I just have read about him, and he does seem like someone that has a bright future based on what people who've watched him play quite a bit have to say about him. Um, I did actually want to give them credit for the strangest signing of the summer when they signed Oli uh, Lancashire, who came through their academy, left 11 years ago, and has basically bounced around the lower leagues at Grimsby, at Walsall, Aldershot, Rochdale, Shrewsbury, Swindon, Crewe. Signed back in the summer. Now, my assumption is it's that he's here to play with the B team. But 
look, United signed Paul McShane for very similar reasons. He might also have been assigning to help them with the quota. Um, and I'm sure he doesn't mind getting a move back to Southampton. You know, it's where he's from. Well, he's from Basingstoke, but he's, you know, he's been at Southampton for a long time. He was at Southampton from 06 to 2010. So he knows the area. I, I can only assume he was brought back for quota reasons and to play with the B team. Because in no way is he good enough to play in the Premier League. One of those just random signings that a club made during the summer. Anyway, I, I do like what Saints have done. I think if they can get more goals out of this team, and I do think there's more goals in the team, I think we can see them go a little bit higher than the current 13th place. Um, I always like when things go well for Ralph Hasenhutl. I think he's had a tough time. At Southampton, there's been a couple of really bad runs, obviously. But by and large, he plays a good brand of football. He's ambitious. He wants them to play on the front foot. He's not a manager who's just okay with mediocrity. I think he's always aiming to improve everything about his situation. He's been linked with a couple of moves away. He seems comfortable there. He seems happy. As long as he keeps them on an even keel, as long as they don't fall apart again, I think he'll be absolutely fine. But I do worry that if they have another big, bad run of form, maybe the axe might fall, because that would be the third one. And if he hasn't yet figured out how to stop it happening then you do have to ask questions. But, look, I think there's a lot of positives for Southampton. I think the fans can be very, very happy with where they are and where they're going. That young defensive core is something to be to be happy with. And if they can keep hold of Broya long-term, I don't know if that will be possible. If they can get Diallo more minutes in the team and add to this, yeah, in a year or so, we might be looking at Southampton as a top-half team. We really might be because there's enough natural development to go there within that group of defenders and Diallo and Broya. And I think Armstrong has a level to go up. I know for a fact Gineppo has a level to go up. I think there's there's a lot of positive signs there, which is good. It is good. Squad size is the biggest concern. Uh, Tottenham Hotspur. How do you even begin to go over their season so far? It started well. They won three games in a row, all of them 1-0. Manchester City, Wolves and Watford. Then they got walloped by Crystal Palace, walloped by Chelsea. Then Arsenal played them off the pitch. But they did show signs in the second half of fighting back and they could easily have gotten a draw out of that game. They beat Aston Villa, they beat Newcastle. They lost to West Ham, they got tonked by United. And then the axe fell. And Nuno Espirito Santo, appointed in the summer, was out the door. He got 10 games in the Premier League as Manchester as, uh, as Tottenham manager and was sacked after the Manchester United game. Funnily enough, he was then replaced by the man who had been heavily linked with the Manchester United job, one Antonio Conte. Now, Conte's only had the one game in charge. That was the nil-nil with Everton at the weekend. 
I think this international break will be key for him as he tries to get his ideas across. The media have rushed to tell us that, but he's banned ketchup and pizzas and all this. Arsene Wenger did this at Arsenal 25 years ago. It's more surprising to me that there are clubs who allow these things than the managers will ban it. Because surely by now everybody has subscribed to Wenger's doctrine on the importance of nutrition. Um, look, there's, there's very hard... Sorry, it's it's very hard to look at Spurs with Conte and not think they'll be successful because of who he is and what he's done in the past. But there's definitely a malaise that's set in with this squad. It is a good squad. There's a lot of good players. But there are certain players, certain key players, who've maybe been at Spurs a little bit too long, who've gotten a little bit too comfortable who've lost something about themselves, some sort of extra little bit of a desire to prove themselves, a chip on their shoulder, whatever it was, that made them very impressive and, and helped catapult Spurs into a Champions League final a couple of years ago. Some of the performances this season have been disgraceful. The lack of effort, now, I would put some of it down to a lack of direction from Nuno. At times, we saw Spurs looking very, very aimless. No real shape to them. Not really having any sort of gusto, I suppose. Like, they played Arsenal. And there was a loose ball that broke between Harry Kane and Ben White. And I would say it was they were probably 10 yards apart as this ball broke. And Kane was probably three yards from the ball. And Ben White beat him to the ball. Now, Ben White is quicker than Harry Kane, no doubt. He's not twice as quick as him. Kane sort of encompasses this whole Spurs team. His lack of effort, his lack of performance, his lack of goals really does just sum up how Spurs have been this season last season he led the league in goals and assists and over the last 6-7 to seven years he has been one of the top goal scorers in the league and one of the best players in the league but this season he scored one Premier League goal and there's absolutely no argument to be made that he's one of the 50, one of the 100 best players in the league. Based on current form, he's probably one of the three or four worst based on his performances this season. Now, he does have seven goals in all competitions because he scored in the Europa Conference League and he scored one in the league, in the League Cup, but that's irrelevant. What we look at here is the Premier League. 21 and 34, 25 and 38, 29 and 30, 30 and 30, uh, 30 and 37, 17 and 28, 18 and 29, 23 and 35, 1 and 10. 1 and 10. Even back in 13 14, 
when most people who weren't avid Spurs fans or paying attention to the lower leagues didn't know who Harry Kane was, he scored three in ten games. Now, right smack in the middle of his prime, he's got one in ten. He looks disinterested. He's not putting in a full shift. And I would imagine he is in for a very rude awakening in the next couple of weeks. Because Antonio Conte will not stand for half-arse performances. He will not allow Harry Kane to drag the level of the team down. He will demand more than anyone has ever demanded from Kane before. And you would think that Kane would look around and see the likes of Young Min Son and Tanguy Endembele and Lacelso and Hoysberg and Christian Romero and Regulon and think, do you know what? There's a really good team here. And if I'm great, I can elevate everybody else. And we've got one of the best managers in the world now. Spurs will live and die with Harry Kane. They made the decision in the summer not to sell him. And if they end up having a season that continues as this one has gone, where they win five and lose five and win five and lose five, they're... Someone's going to have to point a finger at Daniel Levy and say, you should have sold that guy. You should have sold him. They got worse as soon as he came back into the team this year. They played City without him. They were they were actually really good. They were really, really good. The Wolves game, they were flat. The Watford game, they were flat. And then they started getting tonked. He came on at halftime in the Wolves game. Or well, not halftime, late in, in, in the second half. And basically took some of the momentum away and he's just been poor ever since. There's not one good Harry Kane performance thus far in the league. Not one that you can point to. There's been a couple where he's shown some signs of life. Like I did think against uh, Newcastle, he did show signs of at least waking up, but then he went back to sleep for the West Ham game, the United game and the Everton game. And there was a time during that Everton game, when a ball got played down the channel for Kane that was very much reachable and Kane sort of wandered after it, not at full speed, the ball ran out of play and the camera just turned to Antonio Conte who was just standing there looking at him as if he couldn't understand what he'd just witnessed. He couldn't understand why Kane wasn't crashing into the advertising boards behind the goal, trying to keep the ball in play. Well, Harry's going to be in for a tough couple of weeks. Now, Spurs have other problems other than him. Um, They've got issues at centre-back, without question. Defensively, they've not been good enough this season. They've conceded 16, but only scoring nine is, is the biggest problem. Romero hasn't fully settled yet, but I think Conte is the is the guy who will get him settled and dialed in and get the best out of him. The biggest problem they're going to have is who plays with him in the three. It can't be Eric Dyer. It just can't be. Because he is a liability every time he steps foot on the pitch. There are times he'll have a good game, and he's one of those where... He has a good game and then he's got like this weird little kind of hive of fans who come out and want to tell you, I told you Eric Dyer was great, but he he had one good game after six 
tragically poor games over the past few weeks. And then it'll be terrible the next week and you won't hear from them again. Eric Dyer is not good enough to start for Tottenham. And he's one of the players that they should be looking to move out. There's a lot of good players there. And if they all buy in to what they're about to be sold by Conte, I really do think it will benefit everybody at the club. And they can still make top four this year. Because it's wide open. You look at the league table. And right now Spurs sit ninth. But they're only six points off four. Seven points off West Ham, who would be the team most likely, obviously, to drop out of that top four. But they can't afford to continue the way they have. They can't afford for the defence to be as bad as it's been. This is the second worst defence in the top half, behind only Manchester United. And it's the worst attack in the top half. In fact, Spurs have scored the second least goals in the entire league. Only Norwich have scored less. They've got Harry Kane and Hyungman Son, and they've scored nine goals in 11 games. And it's not Son's fault. So Harry Kane should be embarrassed. And I hope that while he's away with England, someone says it to him. I hope that Jordan Henderson or somebody pulls him aside and says, look, you're, you're embarrassing yourself this year. I doubt they will. I doubt they'd have the courage to. Henderson might, but he might not do it in that kind of way. But I don't think anyone else would have the courage to just pull him aside and say, look, what are you doing? You want your move to City? Earn your move to City. Go out and score and do the things that make you great. Because right now, I don't see City wanting him either. Because when players get, when, when a player shows he's got this in him, that for me would be the ultimate red flag. You want to half arse and lollygag your way around and slither your way out of this club or, or that club, you're not coming to my club. If that's in you, that can come out again. And I don't want any part of that. So, Spurs have to fix things at both uh, in bo at both ends. It's a big job for Conte, but I think he knew that coming in because obviously he almost took the job in the summer. He's likely been keeping an eye on them all season long. But his biggest task is getting Kane back on board. And if Kane doesn't, the guy's a fool because he'll, he'll, he won't work for a better manager than Antonio Conte. Uh, we'll do Watford before we take the break. Obviously, uh, they've changed manager already this season. Cisco sacked at the last international break and Claudio Ranieri, who I insisted on calling Carlo for about a week, uh, in the door. They beat Aston Villa on the opening day of the season before three straight losses to Brighton, Tottenham and Wolves. Then they beat Norwich. That was a good result for them. They got a draw with Newcastle, which I think they were a little bit disappointed about. And then they lost to Leeds. Then they sacked the manager. They brought in Ranieri and Liverpool tonked them. Then they went and beat Everton 5-2. Four goals in the last 12 minutes. A really impressive turnaround, having been 2-1 down. Then they lost to Southampton. Then they lost to Arsenal. Only Liverpool have really hammered them this season. The rest of the defeats, 2-0, 1-0, 2-0, 1-0, 1-0, 1-0. Not dreadful. Not anything to be embarrassed about. 
they don't have a good group of defenders. That's important to point out. But as a unit, they do work really hard for each other. And it has been quite impressive to see just how strong the collective mindset seems to be there. Now, I do think Ben Foster coming back into the team after injury has helped. He brings organization. He brings leadership. He's a, still a very good goalkeeper despite being, well, 73 or whatever age he is. What age is Ben Foster? Uh, 38. 38. And still, still a very good keeper. Um, he's at a contract next summer. I would imagine he will have premiership offers, premiership, Premier League offers to, to stay, uh, in the top league. Um, look, I, I don't know how realistic it is for a team to try and stay up in this division when your centre back group is William Troost Ekong, Nicholas Nkulu, who you've signed off the scrap heap, Craig Cathcart, who's always struggled in the Premier League. Christian Cabaselli, again, he's always struggled in the Premier League. And Francisco Sirialta, who I don't know enough about, but he hasn't impressed me from what I've seen so far. Maybe there's something there, I don't know. But, you know, you've got issues at left back with Danny Rose playing the way he is, which has been very, very disappointing. Adam Messina is a talent, but at 27 now, He's been at the club a long time. I think if he was ever going to become the player people thought he could be when he was 22, 23, it would have happened by now and he would have been plucked away. You know, Femenia and Ngakia, I do like it right back. I think that's the best part of their defence. The midfield, there's a lot of meh in midfield. Itibo, I like. He's out for a chunk of the season now. Luza, I don't know enough about. I haven't seen a whole bunch of him. Tom Cleverley, very, very meh. Dan Gosling was meh five years ago. At this point, is flat out bad. Ozan Tufan is a talented player, but I don't know. I don't know if, if he's got the burst to play in this league. When he gets bold to feet, he's neat and tidy. He can be a little bit inventive. But he can also get a little bit harried. They can press him off the ball. Um, Musa Sissoko is what he is, and, and it's all meh. And Kuchka, he's decent, but I mean, he's 34. He's an aging player with aging legs, with a lot of miles under his legs. Who, you know, how's he going to hold up for a full season? This is year 15, 16, year 16 for him as a senior pro. It's a lot of mileage, a lot of training sessions, and a lot of it spent, you know, back in Slovakia and the Czech Republic, where you, you're going to be playing on some cabbage patches in cup games and things like that. He's a good player. There's no doubt he's a good player, but... He is an aged player. You know, up front, I do like some of the options. I like Josh King. I like Joe Pedro. Uh, Ken Seaman, not so much. Ashley Fletcher, a championship player. Uh, Ishmael Asar, Emmanuel Dennis, and uh, Chucho Hernandez, I do like. Quadro Bar, we haven't seen yet, but he was very highly rated when he was at Rochdale, almost moved to Manchester City. Like, 
there's parts of the squad I like. There's parts of it that are like you, you know, you wouldn't have much of an opinion on. And then there's parts of it that are just flat out terrible, which is most of the defence. They're such a strange club. They're they're the most un English team going. Their approach to squad building, to managers, to long term planning, it just it's all out the window. They just seem to make it up as they go along. I don't know that Watford necessarily know, you know, what their long term plan is. I don't know if they have any long term goals other than being in the Premier League. And if they go back down, which I do think is a strong possibility, I don't know that they've got a plan to come back up. I don't know that there's anybody sitting around at Watford saying, right, well, if we go down, we'll get rid of Ranieri, and here's the manager we're going to get in, and here's why we'll get him in. Because he's got a track record of promotion. You know? I don't know that anybody sits around at Watford and thinks, well, if if we have to sack Ranieri in two months, where do we go from there? Oh, oh, we'll just make it up as we go along. I think that's what happens. I think somebody just goes, right, who's available? And they just pluck a name. And they may, maybe they start calling from the top down. And maybe Carlo's age had him at the top. It hasn't gone particularly well so far under him. Uh, I don't expect it to go all that well under him he's never been a great manager has Claudio four games one win the one win was good to be fair but three defeats already and you look at his career he just it's very uninspiring it's very very uninspiring and I don't know how it is that he has continually gotten so many top top jobs this man has managed Napoli Fiorentina Valencia Atletico Madrid, Chelsea, Valencia again, Parma, Roma, Juventus, Inter Milan, Monaco. I could understand when he got the Leicester job because they'd almost been relegated and they weren't considered very good. Um, you know, Nantes, Fulham, they brought him in as a firefighter. It was a mess. Uh, back to Roma, you know, you, you had him before. You knew he wasn't great. Why would you bring him back? Uh, Sampdoria. Didn't think much of what he did there. And now at Watford. And in his entire career, he's won one Coppa del Rey, one Coppa Italia, the Premier League, obviously, and a couple of lower league promotions. He got Cagliari promoted, he got Fiorentina promoted, and he got Monaco promoted. Aside from that, I think, how do you manage that long and not win at that many big clubs and not have more major honours? You've got one league and two cups. And you've managed some of the biggest clubs in the world. Like, I know, fair enough, to be fair, he managed Juventus. They'd just come back up, hadn't they? They'd just been promoted back from Syria B into Syria A. So, to be fair, we'll give them that one. But, like, still, still, it's just... I don't know how he continues to get jobs. It's a magnificent thing. He's got a reputation that does not link in with what he has been as a manager. 
Uh, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to rattle through West Ham and Wolves. See you in a minute. Right, folks, welcome back. So, West Ham United currently third in the league, having an outstanding start to the season. They beat Newcastle, they hammered Leicester, they drew with Crystal Palace and Southampton, lost at home to Manchester United, beat Leeds, lost at home to Brentford, beat Everton, beat Spurs, beat Aston Villa, and then beat Liverpool. West Ham United are very much for real. They are playing good football. They are defending very, very well. I think the, you know, you you look at their goals against record, 13, fair enough, not brilliant. However, if you look at the fact that four of them came in the first three games, it has been better since. And that's with playing Manchester United, Liverpool, Spurs, you know, good teams that, a year ago, West Ham wouldn't have been expecting to compete with, let alone beat two of them and deserve a draw from the other. They've been unfortunate in both of their defeats. Obviously, the Mark, well, the, I don't know if you can class it as unfortunate, the fact that Mark Noble was brought on cold to take a penalty in stoppage time. I think stupidity is more the word. But, you know, they were unfortunate against Brentford when they gave up that late goal. A game that a draw was probably the fairest result, though. You wouldn't have taken the defeat away from Brentford, given they were the away side. They're a smaller club than you in the league. When they got their goal, you'd say, oh, they deserve that. Because any time I think a club like Brentford can match a club like West Ham, I almost think they deserve the win, even if they're not the better team on the day. Um, There's so much to like about them. I talked about this after they played Liverpool. They're... Their tactical shape is brilliant. And they're so disciplined and so well coached. Tactically, as good as anyone in the league. Absolutely as good as anyone in the league. You've got a group of players fully committed to playing for this manager and fully committed to learning what he wants and then carrying it out on the pitch. And when you see them out of possession rotate from the flat 4-5-1 to the 4-1-4-1 as they start to press their way out of defence. When you see them in possession go from the 4-2-3-1 to 4-2-4 or 4-3-3, it's very, very impressive. How quickly they rotate through uh, through formations, how quickly those players are able to adapt to new looks, new approaches. It's really, really impressive. And what what I really like is that there's very much a culture of of filling in at West Ham. So what I mean by that is if Cresswell gets caught up the pitch, there's no massive panic of a winger having to race back 40 yards to fill in for him. It's all very calmly done. If Cresswell gets caught high up the pitch, the left-sided centre-back, it's been Ogbonna, it won't be now because of the injury, but Ogbonna would just slide across to left-back, Suchek or Rice would slide back to centre-back, and then one of 
Fornals or Ben Rama would just drop into midfield. And then Cresswell is the left winger. And the 4-2-3-1 shape is still in place. And it's been done with minimal fuss. It's been done without somebody having to abandon their own position to chase back. And now you've got two players out of position. Now you're playing nine against 11. And now you're leaving yourselves open. The way they do it, how quickly they are to just fill in, is very, very impressive. Another thing I really like is they don't chase men. If you see a player cutting in against West Ham, they rotate that man over. So, again, what I mean by that is the right back won't... If an opposition left winger is going down the field and cuts in field and runs the centre-back, the right back doesn't go with him. The right back, when he's aware of where that centre-back is, he hands that man off. And then he reassumes his own position. And that centre-back can then make the decision of, where am I bringing this guy? Am I sending him back that way? Am I making the challenge? Am I dropping off? Is he looking to lay the ball off? In which case, I'm not going to commit. There's a lot of intelligence in how they rotate assignment, how they fill in how they play their zones. Like, there's no crossover. You rarely see two or three West Ham players caught out of position at once, as you can do with Manchester United. Um, We'll just say that, again, left winger coming down the field, faced up by Soufal. Soufal will try and guide him infield. And he will guide him infield into one of two zones. or the meeting point of two zones, where Suchek and Zuma can both converge. And as a three, they're looking then to take the ball off that player. They're looking to make him make a decision. Now, they don't commit to a man if they've already got a man. So there's a lot of really good organization, a lot of good communication. And what you will sometimes see is, You'll see Soufal lead that player in field. Zuma step to meet them. And while that might potentially leave Zuma's man free, Soufal just tucks in and fills the space. And he puts himself in a position where, A, he's marking the man. B, he's still aware of his own channel. You'll get Jared Bowen, who's such a hard worker. Such a hard worker. Not... For me, the most technically gifted player, but makes up for that with really impressive speed and incredible work rate. He's, don't get me wrong, he's not, it's not like he's a bad player. He doesn't have technical ability, but compare his technical level to Ben Rama and Fornals. He's not there, but how he matches their level is through work rate and his pace. He has that, he doesn't, it's weird. He doesn't look like a player who should have that level of pace, but. He does have game-changing pace. He comes back into the right-back position as well. So they're just very, very good at filling in, at understanding their zones, at rotating markers. This communication is just... It's second to none right now. Now, I don't know how much of that they'll lose with Albana. He did seem to be the big talker in defence. But I wouldn't put it past Moyes that... He just has them drilled that well that they're doing it on instinct. 
you just don't see them look flustered. You don't see them caught out very often. And the, the great thing for them is I still think there's more to come. Because personally, I think Ariola's the best keeper at the club. And I think if he gets into the team, that can raise them up a level. I think the summer business has been really good. And it's worked out very well for them. Dawson, they obviously had on loan. He's been what they wanted him to be, which is a third or fourth centre-back who's played well in Europe for them. Um, Zuma has been outstanding. I, I didn't... I thought they might have overpaid a little bit. Zuma has been really, really good this season. Nikola Vlasic hasn't quite gotten into the team yet, but he's still young. There's still time. And I think he's going to be a great addition for them. I really like the addition of Alex Kral on loan. I think they will end up keeping him next summer. And I, I think Ariola is is very, very good. There's an awful lot to like about this West Ham team. When you go up and down through the squad, there's very few positions of weakness. They definitely could do with another left-back. I would like a starter, but I could understand why they'd keep hold of Cresswell as the starter. But I think Cresswell as the backup could be, you know, would be ideal. Get a good starter in. I think if you keep Ariola along with Fabianski and Randolph, you're set in goal for, you know, a year anyway while Fabianski and Randolph are still under contract. You've got Zuma, you've got Ogbonna, you've got Diop, you've got Dawson. One more centre back, especially considering Ogbonna's age and the injury and Dawson's age. I think one more centre back. They definitely need one more in midfield. They've got Suchek, they've got Rice, they've got Kral. And then they've only got Mark Noble, who he still gives everything he has. He just he doesn't have a lot to give anymore. He has run his race at West Ham. He has given them absolutely everything he possibly could since 2004. He has given them every single drop of blood, sweat and tears he has through 534 games. Um, I think, yeah, this is to be his last season. So they they need to replace him anyway. But I, I do think that's something they need to do. Behind the strikers, they've obviously got that great starting trio. Then they've got Vlasic, they've got Lanzini, they've got Yarmolenko. You'd want a striker. You'd want someone in to complement Antonio. But these are the type of thing, moves they need to make to maintain this level, to, to ensure that one injury can't completely torpedo the season. Because that is the concern with West Ham. If Antonio gets hurt, what happens? Who plays there? It's probably Jared Bowen. It changes how the team works. You know, if Rice gets injured, at least they can bring in Kral. Now, then they just have an issue of a lack of depth behind Kral and Suchek, but at least the starting 11 stays strong. The injury to Bonner at the back is a big one because, you know, any time you start to lose centre-backs, especially older centre-backs, you do start to worry a little bit. But there's not a whole lot needed for this West Ham team to maintain... I say this level, I'm talking about top six. The level they showed last season... And they're showing this season. I think it is sustainable for two, three years. 
there's a good enough group of players, a committed group of players, players who are still going to improve. I mean, look at the, the ages of the squad. Like, you've got Fornals is 25, can still get better. Vlasic, 24, can still get better. Suchek, 26, can still get better. Kral, 23, can still get better. Rice, 22, is going to get a lot better. Jared Bones, 24. Ben Ramas, 26. Like, I think even Zuma at 27 has room for growth. He's just turned 27. I think over the next 12 to 18 months, we'll see him go up a level. Issa Diop definitely has development to do. Ben Johnson, who I've been really impressed with at right back this season, uh, he's got loads of room for development. So there's plenty, again, there's plenty of natural progression to come from this group. They're getting very well coached. They've got a manager who has a very clear idea of how he wants his team to play. And he's got a knack of getting his message across. And it didn't work from United because when he walked into United, he walked into a, dress, a dressing room of players who'd won everything. And Moyes had won nothing. Well, this West Ham team have won nothing. So Moyes is on an even keel with them. And they look up to him because he's the manager. At United, the players look down on him because, well, who are you? We've just worked for Fergie. The West Ham players that were there pre-Moyes, they've seen some bad managers. They've seen a lot of bad times. And they'll remember that Moyes did well the first time he was there. The ones he's brought in, he brought in. They're there because of him. They have that built-in respect as the man that brought them to the club. I love the job he's doing. And I think it's worth pointing out that Thomas Suchek is probably the most underrated player in the league right now. Declan Rice rightly gets a lot of plaudits, but Thomas Suchek is the absolute key to this West Ham team because he makes everybody better. Super intelligent player, positional sense always on point, reads the game really well, selfless worker, covers a ton of ground, getting into positions that don't directly affect the game, but create opportunities for others to affect the game. Like, he makes runs knowing he's not getting the ball. He drops deep knowing he's not going to receive the ball, but it creates space for Rice to receive the ball because he brings a marker away. He's such a good player. And the other one that I wanted to highlight is Fornals because for a couple of years... When he was at Malaga and then Villarreal, he was so highly touted. And he was going to be like this Spanish international. He's going to play every game. He's going to be great. Yeah, yada, yada, yada. He moved to West Ham and it didn't work in the first season. It must be pointed out it didn't work in the first season. He struggled to get a regular starting role. He was coming off the bench quite a bit. Moyes put faith in him, and that faith has been rewarded massively. And he's gone from being somewhat of a luxury player to undroppable. He's absolutely undroppable. He might be their best player right now. Right now, at this moment, he might be their best player. 
He's great on the ball. He's brilliant in transition. Defensively, he gets through a ton of work. His anticipation and reading of the game, every second ball in that West Ham-Liverpool game seemed to fall to him. Every West Ham clearance seemed to fall to him. Everything on the edge of the box, he just seemed to be the one that was there, hoovering it up, and not just taking it in, settling it down, taking it in and getting them moving in one movement. Touch and pass, aware of everything, has that picture in his head of where the pieces are on his chessboard. Such a talented player, marrying it with tactical awareness, discipline, and a commitment to his off-ball work. A lot of people talk about Declan Rice being a target for the big six. I think Pablo Fornals will be a target for at least one, if not two or three, of the big six clubs. Now, I wouldn't advocate for him to move. I think where he is is perfect. I think the role he has is great. I think there's, like I said earlier, room to grow with this West Ham team. They can find more goals, get a little bit tighter at the back, which they have been doing, to be fair. And just add those little pieces to the squad that they need. One in midfield, starting left back, get a backup striker in, another centre-back maybe for depth and for the future. There's just there's something brewing at West Ham, and it's really exciting. And if you're a West Ham fan, you should be really excited. This is the best team you've had since the 80s. When, you know... Football was was a different sport, really. Doesn't pay. Doesn't really relate to what we see now. It's a very, very different game. This is a game where it's not a level playing field. Back in the eighties, it was very much a level playing field. You know, we saw how many English teams won the title, won the European Cup. There was a level playing field. Now it's not. It's a very unfair game now. It's like that Billy Bean quote from uh, Moneyball. Now, West Ham aren't the one under the 50 feet of crap. That would be probably Norwich or maybe Watford, though, you know, the poorer relations. But they're not in the rich teams. Now, with the new investment, maybe. But West Ham haven't been in the rich teams. They've been in the poor teams. But they've been able to bridge the gap last season and this season. And all of the credit should go to Moyes. But those players, they really are giving absolutely everything. And they're a credit to a club that I think is unfairly mocked because they embrace their history so much. It always bothers me. Like, people laugh, oh, West Ham, remember they won the World Cup? Well, hang on a second now. The greatest sporting achievement in the history of English football, of England is winning the World Cup in 66. And West Ham were a huge factor in that World Cup win. How can anybody suggest that they weren't? How can anybody laugh at that? Like, that's something that should be embraced. That's something that they should remain hugely proud of. The fact that there were three West Ham players, Bobby Moore, Martin uh, Martin Peters and Jeff Hurst, in that 
England squad. They should be so proud of that. They should be proud of how many England, England internationals they've produced. They should be proud of their academy and what it's brought to the game. West Ham shouldn't be mocked for their embracing of history in any way. West Ham should be really, really loaded for that. I think they've always stuck to the correct principles of the game at every level. And if you look at the players that have come through their academy, that have come through West Ham, you know, the likes of Moore, Hurst and Peters, they all came through that academy. Trevor Brooking came through that academy. Lampard, Ferdinand, Cole, Ince, Carrick, you know, Jermaine Defoe, Glenn Johnson. It's it's dried up, admittedly, in recent years until Declan Rice. But there was others. There's like the likes of Reese Oxford that came through that academy. It just didn't really work out for him. Now he is playing quite well for Augsburg. The last I heard, um, it's a shame that it didn't work out with him at West Ham because he he did look like he was going to be really really impressive. But, you know, in recent years, Declan Rice, Connor Coventry, meant to be very talented. Grady Diangana, I'd like them to buy him back. I, 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 I do like him. I do think he's a good player. But Johnson is good. They lost Ngakia to Watford. I think he made a mistake in going there. But there's a bunch of other young players coming through that are very, very highly regarded. Uh, Nathan Trout, the, uh, Trout, the keeper. Highly thought of. There's a bunch of players coming through that West Ham Academy. They're getting back to doing things the West Ham way. And it's great to see. It really is great to see. And the future is so bright for the club that if you're a fan of, you know, a team that would have viewed yourselves as around the same level as West Ham, you're probably feeling a little bit jealous right now. You know, you're probably looking at them with a little bit of envy. Because there's not many clubs where everything is going as well as it is for West Ham. Uh, we'll finish up with Wolves then. So, last season, they were the most boring team in the league. They're just awful to watch. The Nuno era had gone stale. After the first two seasons in the Premier League, which had been really impressive. And massive credit goes to him and to them for coming up into the Premier League and finishing in the top half twice. I, I think that was really impressive. And just to the the people that say asking Gerrard to finish in the top eight in the Premier League as a bare minimum is unrealistic. Nuno did it with Wolves as a newly promoted team into the division. So twice. So why couldn't Gerrard do it? on a regular with Villa, who have a better team and plenty of money to spend. Can we set real objectives for Gerrard? Can we put aside the fact that of who he is and focus in on what his job is, who he's getting to manage, what club he's getting to manage? Can we stop pretending that he just needs to turn up for work every day and be nice to people and play some nice football and that's good enough? Because it's only Aston Villa. 
Like, do you understand what club that is? Anyway, uh, in the last year under Nuno, it had gone stale. And a change was needed and a change was made. And Bruno Lage arrived from Portugal and has done a very, very good job. I mean, they started badly. Obviously, they lost four of their first five. Lost to Leicester, but were unfortunate to lose to Leicester. Created a lot of chances, and if Adama could finish, they would have won that game. They should have gotten a draw against Tottenham. Again, they lost 1-0, but again, created a ton of chances. And if Adama could finish, they would have gotten a draw. And then we had the United game where they absolutely smacked United around the place and somehow lost 1-0. So, three games, three defeats. But they're all games they should have won. Then they beat Watford. Then Brentford went and did a number on them. And Brent, that's the only game until the weekend where I've watched Wolves and thought they're completely being outclassed here. Brentford outclassed them. Tony was brilliant. But then they beat Southampton. Then they beat Newcastle. Then they beat Villa. They get a draw with Leeds. They beat Everton. And all of a sudden, after having you know, one win from five with four defeats, well, all of a sudden they've now got five wins from seven with only one defeat. And things are looking much brighter for them. Now, they did obviously lose to Crystal Palace the weekend, and they deserve to lose to Crystal Palace. Crystal Palace were better on the day. And like I said, it was the second time this season where they've been outplayed and outclassed. But Palace are a team on the up. Palace are a team you have to be impressed with. But you really do have to be impressed with this Wolves team right now. With the way they're playing, with how quickly they've adapted to the changes that Bruno Lage has made. And I'm not a fan of Jose Sa at all, but to his credit, he has had a good start to the season. They made the Rayan Nuri deal permanent. I think he is really growing into that left wing back role in the last couple of weeks. Um... They brought in Mosquera. He looked promising in the little bit he played, and then he got injured and he's out for a while. They brought in Trinkio, who started, seemed to struggle, and then worked his way, was out of the team, worked his way back in, and, and has started to flourish in this team. And Wang Hee Chan, who had a disastrous time at Leipzig, mostly down to having caught COVID, he has been excellent. And his partnership and understanding with Raul Jimenez, who is getting better and better, as the weeks go by, has been has been absolutely key to this team. Now, I still don't trust them defensively, I have to say. I really don't trust that defence. But they have only conceded 12 goals this season. And it's very much like a Thomas Tuchel setup, where individually the defenders aren't that good. But the system protects them really well. And that's a system that Nuno had put in place. Lage has tweaked it ever so slightly, but his major changes are when they go forward. Now, look, like with Tottenham, they have won five, lost five, and drawn one. But their outlook is much brighter than Tottenham's. Because they were expected to struggle badly. Because Bruno Lage was a very much an unknown quantity in the Premier League. Spurs were getting Nuno who everybody thought, you know, oh, he you know, he did a great job, he'll do well. Um, it was kind of overlooked that Laj had won the, the double with Benfica because of how the job ended for him, you know. 
But this is a fun team to watch. This really is a fun team to watch. And it's just great to see players being allowed to play outside of little boxes. Like Ruben Neves, last season in particular, was put in a small box and really had to rein his game back in. And a lot of what makes Ruben Neves great is playing off the cuff, that ability to just change the game with one pass, with a piece of, with, you know, some vision and just a beautifully weighted pass, or with a shot from distance or whatever it might be. That was taken away from him under Nuno. Now it's back and now we're seeing more of the real Ruben Neves. Raul Jimenez getting back on the pitch is great. Uh, two goals so far. There's a lot more to come. I think Trinkiao has levels to go up. They've still got Neto to come back as well. And I think when Neto comes back, they could well go to something more like a 4-4-2, which is what Bruno Lage played at Benfica. I think he could go Trinkiao on the right, Neto on the left, and then Huang and Jimenez up front with the double pivot of Neves and either Moutinho or Dendonker. He will need to sort his centre-backs out for that, though. Because um, Connor Cody in the back four is not is not going to work for you. But Max Kilman has looked really really good this season. Uh, arguably Wolves player of the season so far. I think you can make a case that him and Roman Sice could be a pairing, or you know when he comes back, him and Mosquera will be the pairing. I think Aitnuri will be fine as a left back. He's played as a left back before. I actually think Semedo suits being a, le- a right back more than he does a right wing back. So it might help him. But lots to be positive about for Wolves. Things going very, very well. A team in form. A team playing good football. A manager who seems to have good ideas about what he wants his team to be. And by the sounds of things, your finances are settling down as well. And you may well have some money to spend in the the next couple of windows. Now, you spent a little bit in the summer, but um, I think there could well be some some arrivals at Wolves in the next couple of windows. I will say I think Adama probably goes in January. I don't think that's a big issue for Wolves. I think they'd be quite happy to move him on if they get a good enough fee. And if they can take that money and invest it in their defence, it's probably the best thing for them. But I think Wolves so far have been... More impressive than their record shows because unlike with Spurs who've been tonked a couple of times and I just outplayed comfortably, the only two teams that have outplayed Wolves are Brentford and Palace. They didn't deserve to lose the games against Leicester, Tottenham and United. In fact, they deserve to win at least two of them. And I think that tells you a lot about how good they can be if they can become a little bit more ruthless and a little bit more streamlined. But all things considered, Wolves can be happy with where things are going right now and so can their fans. We will wrap up with the gossip and that will get us done for the week. Uh, Manchester City are willing to sell Raheem Sterling and value him at about $45 That's a bargain. And if someone does buy him for that, they'll be very, very happy. Uh, new Barcelona boss Xavi will have $8.6 million to spend on strengthening the squad in the summer because they're broke. Arsenal have been given a boost in their quest to sign Raheem Sterling. 
after Barcelona reportedly stopped their preparations for the transfer. There were no preparations because they have no money. Newcastle are targeting three Manchester United players in January. Dean Henderson, Jesse Lingard and Donny van de Beek. Um, I doubt it. I doubt it. I doubt they'd, I doubt they'd look at one club for three players. Real Madrid want Wilf Ndidi in January. I doubt it. They've got Casemiro. They've got Valverde. They've got Camavinga. I don't think they're going to buy Wilf Ndidi. Uh, that may be his agent putting news out there to try and, you know, get him a new contract or something. When is Ndidi's contract up? Let's have a quick look. Uh, that, uh, Wilfred Ndidi contract till 2024. Last contract signed 2018. Wilf Ndidi is looking for a new contract. That is what is happening there. Uh, Tottenham are not planning a move for Gareth Bale. And rightly so. Uh, Roma manager Jose Mourinho is interested in signing Diogo Delot. Makes sense. I think they tried to buy him in the summer. He obviously bought him when he was at United. So it makes sense. Uh, Sevilla are tracking Edison Cavani and Alex Lacazette. They've been after Lacazette for a while. I think they probably end up with him. If I was Arsenal, you're looking at Dusan Vlahovic. You're not going to get him. So you're, you're clearly looking at that tall, rangy, powerful striker. In January, I think there's probably a deal that sends Lacazette to Sevilla and brings you Yosef Naziri. And I think he's the type of player that would be the perfect number nine for you. Um, Spurs are interested in Dejan Kulusevski. I'm sure a lot of clubs are. Uh, Arsenal are also looking at him. Matteo Ganduzzi wants to stay at Marseille when his loan ends. I think he's got, they've got a buyout or buy, a buy clause anyway. So, I would assume he stays. Uh, Monaco midfielder Aurelien Chimeni has been linked to the move to Manchester United and half of Europe. Dusan Vlahovic has been monitored by Arsenal, Tottenham and Liverpool and everybody else. German midfielder Mesut Ozil has, told, has been told to focus on f- football rather than commercial interests by Fenerbahce president Ali Koch. Um, considering the circus they made of signing him and how much of a pay cut he took to go there, I think Ali should shut up and let him do what he wants. Uh, Mesut Ozil should not be playing for Fenerbahce. He should be playing in a top-five league. Barcelona will not be re-signing Dani Alves. Now, this is from yesterday, but there is news today that they are looking to re-sign him. Arsenal are interested in Tyler Adams. Could make sense as a as a dynamic ball winner next to Thomas Partey. That that could make sense. He'd also make sense for Spurs. Um, Fenerbahce's twenty three year old Hungarian central defender Attila Zlaya is wanted by Chelsea and Atletico Madrid. Um, a better fit probably for Atletico Madrid than Chelsea. Would be my, would be my, uh, view on that. A better fit for, for Atletico. And that's it, folks. That is us for today. That is us for the week. Uh, thank you as always for listening. I will see you all Monday. Enjoy your weekends. Bye bye.
Sports Social Podcast Network.